Section 21 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. The Battle of Metaurus, B.C. 207, by Sir Edward S. Creasy, Part 2. It was in the spring of 207 B.C. that Hasdrubal, after skillfully disentangling himself from the Roman forces in Spain, and after a march conducted with great judgment and little loss through the interior of Gaul and the passes of the Alps, appeared in the country that now is the north of Lombardy. At the head of troops which he had partly brought out of Spain and partly levied among the Gauls and Ligurians on his way, at this time Hannibal, with his unconquered and seemingly unconquerable army, had been eight years in Italy, executing with strenuous ferocity the vow of hatred to Rome, which had been sworn by him, while yet a child, at the bidding of his father, Hamilcar, who, as he boasted, had trained up his three sons, Hannibal, Hasdrubal, and Mago, like three lions' whelps, to prey upon the Romans. But Hannibal's latter campaigns had not been signalized by any such great victories as marked the first years of his invasion of Italy. The stern spirit of Roman resolution, ever highest in disaster and danger, had neither bent nor despaired beneath the merciless blows which the dire African dealt her in rapid succession at Trebia, at Thrasymene, and at Cannae. Her population was thinned by repeated slaughter in the field. Poverty and actual scarcity ground down the survivors through the fearful ravages which Hannibal's cavalry spread through their cornfields, their pasture lands, and their vineyards. Many of her allies went over to the invader's side, and new clouds of foreign war threatened her from Macedonia and Gaul. But Rome receded not. Rich and poor among her citizens vied with each other in devotion to their country. The wealthy placed their stores, and all placed their lives at the state's disposal. And though Hannibal could not be driven out of Italy, though every year brought its sufferings and sacrifices, Rome felt that her constancy had not been exerted in vain. If she was weakened by the continued strife, so was Hannibal also. And it was clear that the unaided resources of his army were unequal to the task of her destruction. The single deerhood could not pull down the quarry, which he had so furiously assailed. Rome not only stood fiercely at bay, 
but had pressed back and gored her antagonist, that still, however, watched her in act to spring. She was weary and bleeding at every pore, and there seemed to be little hope of her escape if the other hound of old Hamilcar's race should come up in time to aid his brother in the death grapple. Hasdrubal had commanded the Carthaginian armies in Spain for some time, with varying but generally unfavorable fortune. He had not the full authority over the Punic forces in that country, which his brother and his father had previously exercised. The faction at Carthage, which was at feud with his family, succeeded in fettering and interfering with his power, and other generals were from time to time sent into Spain, whose errors and misconduct caused the reverse that Hasdrubal met with. This is expressly attested by the Greek historian Polybius, who was the intimate friend of the younger Africanus, and drew his information respecting the Second Punic War from the best possible authorities. Livy gives a long narrative of campaigns between the Roman commanders in Spain and Hasdrubal, which is so palpably deformed by fictions and exaggerations as to be hardly deserving of attention. It is clear that in the year B.C. 208, at least Hasdrubal outmaneuvered Publius Scipio, who held the command of the Roman forces in Spain, and whose object was to prevent him from passing the Pyrenees and marching upon Italy. Scipio expected that Hasdrubal would attempt the nearest route along the coast of the Mediterranean, and he therefore carefully fortified and guarded the passes of the eastern Pyrenees. But Hasdrubal passed these mountains near their western extremity, and then, with a considerable force of Spanish infantry, with a small number of African troops, with some elephants and much treasure, he marched, not directly toward the coast of the Mediterranean, but in a northeastern line toward the center of Gaul. He halted for the winter in the territory of the Arverni, the modern Auvergne, and conciliated or purchased the goodwill of the Gauls in that region, so far that he not only found friendly winter quarters among them, but great numbers of them enlisted under him, and, on the approach of spring, marched with him to invade Italy. By thus entering Gaul at the southwest, and avoiding its southern maritime districts, Hasdrubal kept the Romans in complete ignorance of his precise operations and movements in that country. All that they knew was that Hasdrubal had baffled Scipio's attempts to detain him in Spain that he had crossed the Pyrenees with soldiers, elephants, and money, and that he was raising fresh forces among the Gauls. 
the spring was sure to bring him into Italy, and then would come the real tempest of the war, when, from the north and from the south, the two Carthaginian armies, each under a son of the thunderbolt, were to gather together around the seven hills of Rome. In this emergency, the Romans looked among themselves, earnestly and anxiously, for leaders fit to meet the perils of the coming campaign. The Senate recommended the people to elect as one of their consuls Caius Claudius Nero, a patrician of one of the families of the great Claudian house. Nero had served during the preceding years of the war, both against Hannibal in Italy and against Hasdrubal in Spain. But it is remarkable that the histories which we possess record no successes as having been achieved by him, either before or after his great campaign of the Metaurus. It proves much for the sagacity of the leading men of the Senate, that they recognized in Nero the energy and spirit which were required at this crisis, and it is equally creditable to the patriotism of the people that they followed the advice of the Senate by electing a general who had no showy exploits to recommend him to their choice. It was a matter of greater difficulty to find a second consul. The laws required that one consul should be a plebeian, and the plebeian nobility had been fearfully thinned by the events of the war. While the senators anxiously deliberated among themselves what fit colleague for Nero could be nominated at the coming commissia, and sorrowfully recalled the names of Marcellus, Gracchus, and other plebeian generals who were no more, one taciturn and moody old man sat in sullen apathy among the conscript fathers. This was Marcus Livius, who had been consul in the year before the beginning of this war, and had then gained a victory over the Illyrians. After his consulship he had been impeached before the people, on a charge of peculation and unfair division of the spoils among his soldiers. The verdict was unjustly given against him, and the sense of this wrong, and of the indignity thus put upon him, had rankled unceasingly in the bosom of Livius, so that for eight years after his trial he had lived in seclusion in his country seat, taken no part in any affairs of state. Latterly the censors had compelled him to come to Rome, and resume his place in the Senate, where he used to sit gloomily apart, giving only a silent vote. At last an unjust accusation against one of his near kinsmen made him break the silence, and he harangued the house in words of weight and sense, which drew attention to him and taught the senators that a strong spirit dwelt beneath that unimposing exterior. Now, while they were debating on what noble of a plebeian house 
was fit to assume the perilous honors of the consulate, some of the elder of them looked on Marcus Livius, and remembered that in the very last triumph which had been celebrated in the streets of Rome, this grim old man had sat in the car of victory, and that he had offered the last thanksgiving sacrifice for the success of the Roman arms which had bled before Capitoline Jove. There had been no triumphs since Hannibal came into Italy. The Illyrian campaign of Livius was the last that had been so honored. Perhaps it might be destined for him now to renew the long-interrupted series. The senators resolved that Livius should be put in nomination as consul with Nero. The people were willing to elect him. The only opposition came from himself. He taunted them with their inconsistency in honoring the man who they had convicted of a base crime. If I am innocent, said he, why did you place such a stain on me? If I am guilty, why am I more fit for a second consulship than I was for my first one? The other senators remonstrated with him, urging the example of the great Camillus, who, after an unjust condemnation on a similar charge, both served and saved his country. At last, Livius ceased to object, and Caius Claudius Nero and Marcus Livius were chosen consuls of Rome. A quarrel had long existed between the two consuls, and the senators strove to effect a reconciliation between them before the campaign. Here again, Livius, for a long time, obstinately resisted the wish of his fellow senators. He said it was best for the state that he and Nero should continue to hate one another. Each would do his duty better when he knew that he was watched by an enemy in the person of his own colleague. At last the entreaties of the Senate prevailed, and Livius consented to forego the feud, and to cooperate with Nero in preparing for the coming struggle. As soon as the winter snows were thawed, Hasdrubal commenced his march from Auvergne to the Alps, he experienced none of the difficulties which his brother had met with from the mountain tribes. Hannibal's army had been the first body of regular troops that had ever traversed their regions, and as wild animals assail a traveler, the natives rose against it instinctively, in imagined defense of their own habitations which they supposed to be the objects of Carthaginian ambition. But the fame of war, with which Italy had now been convulsed for twelve years, had penetrated into the Alpine passes, and the mountaineers now understood that a mighty city southward of the Alps was to be attacked by the troops whom they saw marching among them. They now not only opposed no resistance to the passage of Hasdrubal, but many of them, out of love of enterprise and plunder, 
or allured by the high pay that he offered, took service with him, and thus he advanced upon Italy with an army that gathered strength at every league. It is said also that some of the most important engineering works which Hannibal had constructed were found by Hasdrubal still in existence and materially favored the speed of his advance. He thus emerged into Italy from the Alpine valleys much sooner than had been anticipated. Many warriors of the Ligurian tribes joined him, and crossing the river Po, he marched down its southern bank to the city of Placentia, which he wished to secure as a base for his future operations. Placentia resisted him as bravely as it had resisted Hannibal twelve years before, and for some time Hasdrubal was occupied with a fruitless siege before its walls. Six armies were levied for the defense of Italy, when the long-dreaded approach of Hasdrubal was announced. Seventy thousand Romans served in the fifteen legions of which, with an equal number of Italian allies, those armies and the garrisons were composed. Upward of thirty thousand more Romans were serving in Sicily, Sardinia, and Spain. The whole number of Roman citizens of an age fit for military duty scarcely exceeded a hundred and thirty thousand. The census taken before the commencement of the war had shown a total of two hundred and seventy thousand which had been diminished by more than half during twelve years. These numbers are fearfully emphatic of the extremity to which Rome was reduced, and of her gigantic efforts in that great agony of her fate. Not merely men, but money and military stores were drained to the utmost and if the armies of that year should be swept off by a repetition of the slaughters of thrasimene and cannae all felt that rome would cease to exist even if the campaign were to be marked by no decisive success on either side her ruin seemed certain in south italy hannibal had either detached rome's allies from her or had impoverished them by the ravages of his army. If Hasdrubal could have done the same in Upper Italy, if Etruria, Umbria, and Northern Latium had either revolted or been laid waste, Rome must have sunk beneath sheer starvation, for the hostile or desolated territory would have yielded no supplies of corn for her population and money to purchase it from abroad there was none. Instant victory was a matter of life or death. Three of her six armies were ordered to the north, but the first of these was required to overawe the disaffected Etruscan. The second army of the north was pushed forward under Portius the Praetor to meet and keep in check the advanced troops of Hasdrubal while the third, the Grand Army of the North, 
which was to be under the immediate command of the consul Livius, who had the chief command in all North Italy, advanced more slowly in its support. There were similarly three armies in the south, under the orders of the other consul, Claudius Nero. The lot has decided that Livius was to be opposed to Hasdrubal, and Nero should face Hannibal. And, when all was ordered as themselves thought best, the two consuls went forth from the city, each his several way. The people of Rome were now quite otherwise affected than they had been when L. Emilius Paulus and C. Terentius Varro were sent against Hannibal. They did no longer take upon them to direct their generals or bid them dispatch and win the victory betimes, but rather they stood in fear, lest all diligence, wisdom and valor should prove too little. For since few years had passed wherein some one of their generals had not been slain, and since it was manifest that if either of these present consuls were defeated or put to the worst, the two Carthaginians would forthwith join and make short work with the other. It seemed a greater happiness than could be expected that each of them should return home victor and come off with honor from such mighty opposition as he was like to find. With extreme difficulty had Rome held up her head ever since the Battle of Cannae, though it were so that Hannibal alone, with little help from Carthage, had continued the war in Italy. But there was now arrived another son of Hamiclar, and one that in his present expedition had seemed a man of more sufficiency than Hannibal himself. For, whereas in that long and dangerous march through barbarous nations, over great rivers and mountains that were thought unpassable, Hannibal had lost a great part of his army. This Hasdrubal, in the same places, had multiplied his numbers, and gathering the people that he found in the way, descended from the Alps like a rolling snowball, far greater than he came over the Pyrenees at his first setting out of Spain. These considerations and the like, of which fear presented many unto them, caused the people of Rome to wait upon their consuls out of the town, like a pensive train of mourners, thinking upon Marcellus and Crispinus, upon whom, in the like sort, they had given attendance the last year, but so neither of them returned alive from a less dangerous war. Particularly, old Q. Fabius gave his accustomed advice to M. Livius, that he should abstain from giving or taking battle until he well understood the enemy's condition. But the consul made him a forward answer, and said that he would fight the very first day, for that he thought it long till he should either recover his honor by victory, or by seeing the overthrow of his own unjust citizens. 
satisfy himself with the joy of a great, though not an honest, revenge. But his meaning was better than his words. Hannibal at this period, occupied with his veteran but much reduced forces, the extreme south of Italy. It had not been expected, either by friend or foe, that Hasdrubal would effect his passage of the Alps, so early in the year as actually occurred. And even when Hannibal learned that his brother was in Italy, and had advanced as far as Placentia, he was obliged to pause for further intelligence, before he himself commenced active operations, as he could not tell whether his brother might not be invited into Etruria to aid the party there that was disaffected to Rome, or whether he would march down by the Adriatic Sea. Hannibal led his troops out of their winter quarters in Brutium, and marched northward as far as Canusium. Nero had his headquarters near Venusia, with an army, which he had increased to 40,000 foot, and 2,500 horse. By incorporating under his own command some of the legions which had been intended to act under other generals in the south, there was another Roman army, 20,000 strong, south of Hannibal at Tarentum. The strength of that city secured this Roman force from any attack by Hannibal and it was a serious matter to march northward and leave it in his rear, free to act against all his depots and allies in the friendly part of Italy, which for the two or three last campaigns had served him for a base of his operations. Moreover, Nero's army was so strong that Hannibal could not concentrate troops enough to assume the offensive against it, without weakening his garrisons and relinquishing, at least for a time, his grasp upon the southern provinces. To do this, before he was certainly informed of his brother's operations, would have been a useless sacrifice, as Nero could retreat before him upon the other Roman armies near the capital, and Hannibal knew by experience that a mere advance of his army upon the walls of Rome would have no effect on the fortunes of the war. In the hope, probably of inducing Nero to follow him and of gaining an opportunity of outmaneuvering the Roman consul and attacking him on his march, Hannibal moved into Lucania and then back into Apulia. He again marched down into Brutium and strengthened that army by a levy of recruits in that district. Nero followed him, but gave him no chance of assailing him at a disadvantage. Some partial encounters seemed to have taken place, but the council could not prevent Hannibal's junction with his Brutian levies, nor could Hannibal gain an opportunity of surprising and crushing the consul. Hannibal returned to his former headquarters at Canusium and halted there in expectation of further tidings of his brother's movements. Nero also resumed his former position in observation of the Carthaginian army. Meanwhile, Hasdrubal had raised the siege of Placentia, and was advancing toward Ariminum on the Adriatic, 
and driving before him the Roman army under Portius, nor when the consul Livius had come up and united the second and third armies of the north, could he make head against the invaders. The Romans still fell back before Hasdrubal, beyond Ariminum, beyond the Metaurus, and as far as the little town of Sena to the southeast of that river. Hasdrubal was not unmindful of the necessity of acting in concert with his brother. He sent messengers to Hannibal to announce his own line of march, and to propose that they should unite their armies in South Umbria, and then wheel round against Rome. Those messengers traversed the greater part of Italy in safety, but when close to the object of their mission, were captured by a Roman detachment, and Hasdrubal's letter detailing his whole plan of the campaign was laid not in his brother's hands, but in those of the commander of the Roman armies of the south. Nero saw at once the full importance of the crisis. The two sons of Hamilcar were now within two hundred miles of each other, and if Rome were to be saved, the brothers must never meet alive. Nero instantly ordered seven thousand picked men, a thousand being cavalry, to hold themselves in readiness for a secret expedition against one of Hannibal's garrisons, and as soon as night had set in, he hurried forward on his bold enterprise, but he quickly left the southern road toward Lucania, and, wheeling round, pressed northward with the utmost rapidity toward Picenum. He had, during the preceding afternoon, sent messengers to Rome, who were to lay Hasdrubal's letters before the Senate. There was a law forbidding a consul to make war, or march his army beyond the limits of the province assigned to him. But in such an emergency Nero did not wait for the permission of the Senate to execute his project but informed them that he was already on his march to join Livius against Hasdrubal. He advised them to send the two legions which formed the home garrison on to Narnia, so as to defend that pass of the Flaminian road against Hasdrubal, in case he should march upon Rome before the consular armies could attack him. They were to supply the place of these two legions at Rome by a levy en masse in the city, and by ordering up the reserve legion from Capua. These were his communications to the Senate. He also sent horsemen forward along his line of march, with orders to the local authorities to bring stores of provisions and refreshment of every kind to the roadside and to have relays of carriages ready for the conveyance of the wearied soldiers. Such were the precautions which he took for accelerating his march, and when he had advanced some little distance from his camp, he briefly informed his soldiers of the real object of their expedition. He told them that never was there a design more seemingly audacious and more really safe. 
He said he was leading them to a certain victory, for his colleague had an army large enough to balance the enemy already, so that their swords would decisively turn the scale. The very rumor that a fresh consul and a fresh army had come up when heard on the battlefield, and he would take care that they should not be heard of before they were seen and felt, would settle the business. They would have all the credit of the victory and of having dealt the final decisive blow. He appealed to the enthusiastic reception which they already met with on their line of march as a proof and a omen of their good fortune. And indeed, their whole path was amid the vows and prayers and praises of their countrymen. The entire population of the districts through which they passed flocked to the roadside to see and bless the deliverers of their country. Food, drink and refreshments of every kind were eagerly pressed on their acceptance. Each peasant thought a favor was conferred on him if one of Nero's chosen band would accept aught at his hands. The soldiers caught full spirit of their leader. Night and day they marched forward, taking their hurried meals in the ranks and resting by relay in the wagons which the zeal of the country people provided and which followed in the rear of the column. End of section 21